There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zotham, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroam, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zeph, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously, to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep, and why do you not eat, and why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. Please take a minute to reflect on God's word. The sun seemed to be setting on this once proud country. A country full of hope and destiny, but it was now stumbling badly. And sadly, most of the people didn't realize it. The, hunt, the country had laws which were easy to understand. However, the people preferred self-sovereignty over the, over the law. Whatever seemed to be right to the individual instantly became law. Personal passions became commandments that had to be obeyed. Though the country labeled itself as an indivisible unit, the unity was just a thin shell that covered a core of individualism. Basically, everyone just did what was right in their own eyes. The early leaders of the country had governed well, but the leadership that followed declined greatly in quality. And as the leadership declined, they drove the country into a downward spiral. 
And in the end, the leaders turned out to be arrogant, sexually immoral, power-hungry men. They considered themselves above the law. Unfortunately, the people reflected, began to reflect the leadership. There was a breakdown in moral standards, which meant the poor were treated unjustly. The poor were used as props for the wealthy. Sex was turned into a device for personal pleasure, which ended in the abuse and brutalization of women. Perhaps the worst part for this once promising country was the rapid decline and decay inside the house of the Lord. The ultimate reason for the downward spiral of the country was actually due to the downward spiral of those who were supposed to be following the Lord. When you visited the house of God in that country, you rarely heard God's word. Instead, ceremony had replaced substance. Shallowness had swallowed up the unsearchable depths of God's word. The priest, entrusted with shepherding the souls of the sheep, instead took their money for personal profit and took their young women who were serving in the church for their personal pleasure. The country in decline and decay I'm trying to describe is Israel in 1100 B.C. And let me just give you a taste of why I've drawn these conclusions. The book that really precedes the book of Samuel. Samuel is the last judge. And so I know Ruth is right before it. But you're supposed to think about the book of Judges. And it ends this way. In those days there was no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. 1 Samuel chapter 3, the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, who is the priest, could not see. He physically couldn't see, and it's a representation that he also couldn't see spiritually. And the lamp of God had not quite gone out. So the sun is setting, it seems to be, on Israel. 1 Samuel chapter 2. The sons of Eli, who were also priests, were worthless men. They didn't know God. The priests didn't know God. They treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. They took the sacrifices designed for God for themselves. They had sex with women who served at the entrance to the place of worship. The lamp of God may not have gone out yet on Israel, but it was no doubt a dark time in their history. And it's against this black backdrop that a single distant star appears. This star doesn't look like much. It definitely doesn't look bright enough to overcome this present darkness. Yet this single star was more powerful than it first appeared. The single star was an obscure woman weeping over her barren womb. And her name was Hannah. This single distant star was an obscure woman who lived in the hill country. And she's weeping in the temple. And her name is Hannah. Now as we examine this seemingly small insignificant woman who takes up the very beginning of the book with towering biblical figures. Samuel, Saul, 
and David. These are towering biblical figures. And here we are in the very first chapter and a half thinking about this one woman who's relatively obscure named Hannah. My main goal in looking at her this morning is for you to be encouraged and challenged in the midst of our own cultural darkness. So my hope is that as as we look at Hannah together, as we make observations about this passage, that we would be encouraged. And, but then we're also going to be challenged as to how we can be more like her. What, what ways can we follow that she has offered us this morning? So I want to do four things. I want to make observations. Observations about Hannah. Observations about how God works. Observations about Hannah's closing prayer, which is the beginning of chapter 2. And then a few observations about us. First of all, observations about Hannah. As the reader, you're supposed to notice that Hannah's circumstances are a reflection of the condition of the country. So if you study 1 Samuel, you're supposed to notice that her circumstances, this little microcosm, are actually a reflection of the country. Her name means favored one. Her name means favored one, yet she's barren, she's unfruitful. So her, her condition contradicts her name. This is the exact same thing that's happening with Israel. Their condition contradicts their name. Their name, Israel, means prince with God or one who prevails with God. Yet they're so far from being a prince with God. They're so far from partnering with God. They're so far from prevailing with God. And then when Hannah gives birth to Samuel, her barrenness is replaced with hope. And this small-scale transition for Hannah is a signal to a larger effect that Samuel will have on an entire nation. Samuel is going to come in and replace the wicked priests. And he's going to usher in hope of an everlasting kingdom that begins with David. And this hope is going to last for a thousand years until we meet David's offspring in Jesus. Another thing we're supposed to notice about Hannah is the contrast between Eli and Hannah. Verse 15, it's, it's Hannah who is the one who's pouring out her heart in the temple, not Eli. Eli seems to not even be able to identify real prayer compared to drunkenness. He, he's so blind, he, and maybe he's so far away from real prayer when he sees it, he gets it confused with a woman who's drunk. Surprisingly, very surprisingly, the people who are worthless. You see that in verse 16, she said, Don't, don't consider me worthless, Eli. In chapter 2, Verse 12, the, the sons of Eli are called worthless. Surprisingly, the people who are worthless are Eli and, the, and his sons, the priests. The person who is priceless, the person who has the attention of God is, is this insignificant woman, which is stunning and encouraging. This is where I want it to be encouraging to you that, that you may feel like sometimes... I'm an insignificant person. Nobody's noticing me. I'm just this one person. What could I possibly do? The, the people who are religious authorities, they must have God's attention. And here Hannah is helping us, helping all those who feel unimportant, unnoticed, 
that she's the one who's priceless. She's the one who's actually moving the kingdom of God forward, not, not the priests. Another observation about Hannah. Hannah, this is really amazing to me. Hannah assumes that this broken-hearted, obscure woman matters to God. We talked about it already, verse 11. The Lord of hosts, the Lord of a great army, she says. Would you pay attention to my affliction? Would you look on my affliction? The affliction of your, of your servant. Hannah understands that God is the Lord of hosts. And she understands that she is a servant, yet she boldly and courageously comes before the Lord and she brings her petition before the Lord and she assumes that this Lord of hosts is actually bending down and listening to her. It's amazing. And that should give us, especially if you feel obscure, encouragement to do the same. Final observation about Hannah. Hannah's prayer changes Hannah. Hannah's prayer changes Hannah. Verse 10, she's deeply distressed and she has bitter weeping. So she begins her prayer in this, this, this total bitterness and this total despair. I, I know many of you have been in that place. And then by verse 18, notice, then she went away and her face was no longer sad. The writer wants you to notice that a transition has taken place just inside this little time of prayer. Then the next day, she's able to, to get up early, worship the Lord. You, you might say that when Hannah left her time of prayer, she left everything with the Lord. When Hannah left her time with, in prayer, she left everything with the Lord. She poured out her soul and she didn't pick it back up when she left. And I wonder how many of you do that. You pour out your soul. You're like, oh, Lord, here are all the things that are burdening me. And just before you say amen, you gather them back in your sack and you put them back on and you go back out the door. And you're, you've got the same burden going out as you did going in. But that doesn't happen with Hannah. Something happens with Hannah. She unburdens herself, just as Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are what? Heavy burdened. And I will give you rest, rest for your, your soul. He's saying, I want you to unpack everything that I have. I want you to unpack it in my presence. And she became satisfied that she had been heard. And then she trusted God for whatever the answer. Notice that she becomes satisfied before she ever hears any answer. She doesn't know what's going to happen. She, there are other barren women who are making the same prayer and, and they get an answer that's no. But she's satisfied here that whatever God is up to, she can trust him. So we can learn from Hannah. Observations about how God works. God's tendency to make our total inability his starting point. You see this all the way through the Bible. God's tendency is to make our total inability 
his starting point. That's like the prop that he likes to use the most. You know, you, you have certain things that you like to use the most. And God says, okay, we've got total inability with Paul now. We can really get something done. One commentator says, our capacity is often the prop God delights to use for his next move. I wish that, I really wish that weren't true. I, I wish he would say, Paul's incredible capacity is where I begin to really make moves. But he's just waiting for the moment where it's almost complete incapacity before he's on his way. We learn this with Abraham and Sarah. Sarah has a child in her 90s. Moses and the parting of the Red Sea. There's no way to get out unless God does something. The bleeding woman, remember, she comes before Christ. She spent all that she had on doctors hoping to get well. And Jesus is like the last resort. The disciples who are nearly drowning in the boat before they wake up Jesus. They tried everything they could and then they say, Jesus, it's got to be up to you. And in the case of Hannah, her barrenness marks a new beginning. Dale Raff Davis, one of the commentaries I recommended as we go through this series, says this, I don't want to minimize the heavy grief that comes with desperate circumstances, but let us moderate our despair by realizing it may be another prelude to God's mighty work. He's not trying to minimize the despair. Hannah comes with great despair, but he wants to moderate our despair, understanding that many times this is the beginning of how God works. And I've lived long enough to see this work in my own life. The times of great despair often were, was the soil God used to begin a work that I couldn't even imagine. So I don't want us to give up in despair. Second point here, even though God often starts with our inability, he still invites people and their prayers to play a role in accomplishing his will. Even though God often starts with our inability, he's still, he's still using people, he's still using their prayers to play a role in accomplishing his will. Now, let me see if I can try to explain this a little bit. Sometimes you'll hear this if God is sovereign over all things, then why would we pray? You ever heard that or even thought that? I mean, everything's going to work out, so just get along for the ride, whatever. And I would answer God's sovereignty includes people's actions and their prayers. And this theme runs all the way through the Bible. Let me give you a couple of examples. The root begins in Genesis chapter 126 when God says, let us, it's a very interesting thing to even think about at creation. Who's he talking to? Let us, let us make man in our image. Maybe it's the Trinity. Maybe it's the, all of the host of heaven. I mean, there are other answers, but he's saying uh, we need somebody in our image. I think that's probably the Trinity. After our likeness. And let them have dominion. Let them have authority. Let them have rule. God's taking some of his rule. And he's depositing, as it would be, into these creatures 
that he's made in his own image. And this flow goes all the way through the Bible. So whatever stories you may be reading in the Bible, they're going to be about God, but they're always going to be, connect, be connected to human activity in some way. God works in partnership with us to bring about his will. And he's doing this with Hannah, and he does it in so many other places. I want to just point out a couple. Exodus chapter 3, you don't have to turn with me there, but you'll be familiar with the story. God's, God's about ready to save his people from slavery in Egypt. And so he has this burning bush moment with Moses. And God says to Moses, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. See the same prayer they've been praying, God, see our affliction. And God says, I've seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering. And I have come down to deliver them. Oh, praise the Lord. If I'm Moses, I'm like, yes, this is exactly what we've been waiting for. You to come down and deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Pesarites and the Hivites and all the otherites there. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. I have seen the oppression Come, I will send you. And what does Moses say? No, I'm not interested in being sent. I'm interested in you doing it. I mean, you just said you're coming down. You heard you're going to get all this stuff done. But what does he say? I'm going to get you involved, Moses. I'm depositing some of my authority in you to be a part of God's sovereign rescue plan. This is tremendous. This is tremendous. God comes down in his holy temple and he interrupts a prayer session with Isaiah. And he sort of wanders out loud. Are people in so much trouble? What will we do? He's again sort of talking to himself. And you remember what he says? Who will I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah says... Great missionary, missions week passage. Here I am. Send me. I want to partner up with God. I want to be a part of God's sovereign plan to get something done that has this eternal weight, this eternal force behind it. And you may say, well, look, I'm no Moses and I'm no uh, Isaiah. But what about Hannah? One woman, all alone in the church, just crying out before the Lord. Lord, I would just like for you to use me in some way. She doesn't rescue a whole nation. She's not a prophetic voice to a whole nation. She just delivers one male, Samuel, who then God uses. So this is the flow. This is the flow through the Bible this is the flow into today of how God works. Be a person who volunteers to be sent to fulfill God's sovereign plan. Allow these stories, especially Hannah's, to propel you to pray. To be the, the prayer that God uses to rescue a person, 
to rescue a family, to rescue a church, perhaps to even rescue a whole nation. Number three, observation about Hannah's closing prayer, which you'll see, and we didn't read in chapter two. It's very obvious probably in your text. It's a, it's a song. She's praying chapter two, verse one, all the way to chapter 10. And I want to just make two points here. First, I think it's worth mentioning that we shouldn't turn the sequence of events in Hannah's life into a formula. This is very easy to do in the Bible, is to take somebody's events and say, well, if I just use that as a formula, then I'm going to get the same results. And I think she's a form, not a formula. I think she's a model to follow. Let's just see what she does. She's in distress. She earnestly pours out her soul to God. And then she prays for a son. This is her prayer request for a son. Chapter 1, verse 28. Love this little phrase, to be lent to the Lord. I, I, this, this is what I'm praying for. This son would come, and it's, it's not for me. It's for you. I'm going to lend him to you. He's and she ends up taking him to the temple about three years old, and then she fades out of the story. I'm praying earnestly. I'm praying in distress. I'm praying for a son. Then she rests in God. She puts her prayer out there. She doesn't pick it back up. She's able to worship the Lord. And then God says yes to Hannah's prayer. And you do hear how easily we can make that a formula, do you not? You pour out your soul. You say, well, whatever it is you want, it's going to go back to you, Lord. You rest, you worship. And then a few days later, you expect God to give you what you just asked for. Like it's a formula. And we want to be careful about that. Because in Matthew chapter 26, another person, a son who is uniquely lent to the Lord... Jesus, is in distress in the Garden of Gethsemane. If anyone pours out their soul, it's Jesus at this point. He rests in God's control. Not my will, but yours be done. He worships God. But what does God say to his prayer? No. So Hannah's is a model, but not a formula. Second thought here, if we had time, we would compare Hannah's prayer to Mary's prayer in Luke chapter 1. That's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to see this woman who's had this miraculous birth, and she bursts forth in a song, exactly what Mary does. And there's a lot of parallels there, especially about bringing down the prideful and lifting up the humble and lowly. And you can do that on your own, Luke chapter 1. But since we don't have time for that, I want to draw your attention just to the last two verses of this song, verses 9 and 10. Let's read them together. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. And the reason I picked these two verses is because they begin to point us 
towards Jesus. Hannah sees in sort of a prophetic way that God is going to guard his faithful ones. Verse 9. And then the, the wicked are going to be cut off. And the adversaries of the Lord are going to be broken to pieces. So she's seeing that God's faithful one, he's going to be protected. And, and the enemies of God are going to be broken. They're going to be cut off. And question then, how will God's enemies be defeated? And she answers verse 9, not by might shall man prevail. Evil is not going to be conquered by the strength of men. Instead, she says, verse 10, God is going to give strength to his king. He's going to give strength to his king to conquer evil. And very surprisingly, and exalt the power of his, what does it say? Anointed. You know what that means in Hebrew? Messiah. There's going to be a king who is the Messiah, who's going to have the strength to conquer evil. It's not going to be by man. You're not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. We're not going to do it. God's going to do it. Now, Hannah, Hannah couldn't possibly imagine the ripple effect of her tear-filled prayer that dark day when she was alone in the temple. This tiny light of her faithfulness was used by God to usher in these towering figures like Samuel and David who, who seemed to shine like two suns for 29 more chapters in 1 Samuel that we'll spend the rest of our time unpacking. But here she is right at the very beginning, this little, little tiny star that begins to let in this great light. It all comes from an obscure woman in a mountain town and she starts something that never will be stopped. Let me close with a few observations about us. When you listen to my opening description about the decline of Israel, you had to hear, did you not, similarities to our own condition. Not perfectly, but somewhat similar to our own cultural moment. It feels some days that we live in a downward spiral. And I think people are wondering, how do we get out of it? Doesn't seem obvious the way out. The political circus of the Supreme Court nomination of Brett Kavanaugh. Many of you watched it. All of you know about it. Whatever side you may be on, not our best moment as a country. Whatever the facts are about the most recent allegations, I hope they come to a, a firm conclusion. But most observers, certainly the secular side of our country, Understand that his nomination and all the energy and battle against his nomination is about Roe versus Wade. It's not about anything else. It's about that one issue. There have been 60 million abortions in the United States since 1963. 60 million. 
That's, that's France. A whole country, a whole nation has been aborted. 20 million African Americans. So 35% of the people have been African Americans that make only, only make up 12% of the population. This, this, whether you think about this very much or not, 60 million abortions creates a dark and depressing weight on the soul of our country. And whenever you have some dark, depressing weight on your soul, most of the time you'd rather just shut it off and not think about it. It distorts our reality. And we're all caught up in it some way, and we don't really know how to get out of it. Also, what seems like a never-ending and terribly disturbing stories of Catholic priests abusing their position for distorted sexual pleasure at the devastation of primarily young boys. Very similar to Eli's sons. They come in and these young women, virgins, are serving the temple and they come in and use them for their own sexual satisfaction. And this story never seems to end. And I'm not saying Protestants are immune to this issue. But this is the culture we live in. This is pick up the newspaper, turn on CNN, whatever you do, you're going to hear this all the time. And it causes this feeling of we're in a downward spiral. We don't know how to get out. 400 years ago, people were put to death for translating the Bible into a language that they could understand. People 400 years ago came to church hungry to hear a word from the Lord. But a word from the Lord that came from the Bible that they were reading. They had to chain the Bible in the church down so it wouldn't be stolen. It was so valuable. Yet today, sadly, the word of God is rare in too many Protestant churches. Churches born out of this rich soil of men and women laying down their lives for God's word. Yet many, many churches have been swallowed by ceremony or shallowness. People come in, I think, still hungry, but they leave not satisfied. How do we get out of this? I would suggest it's going to take great God-centered leadership for us to overcome our present darkness. A Samuel, a David. But this leadership begins at home with Hannah. That's where it starts. It begins with some woman who nobody would really know of who came and poured her heart out before the Lord and said, Lord, in this culture, children are sacrificed and used and promoted in different ways and they've got to have this degree or they have to have completed in these kinds of sports. This son, this daughter, I'm going to lend them to you. 
Because our culture is in such desperate need of some young man, some young woman who would enter in and say, I've grown up in this strong timber of this environment of my home. So that when I go out in the culture, I'm not going to be quickly swayed. And that begins with some mom. Some mom saying, no. No to to whatever seems to be the cultural appetite. It might be academics. It might be athletics. It might be iPhones or Xboxes. It might be a comfortable or popular life. And help their children see and say yes to Jesus. The way out for a country in a downward spiral, for Hannah, for Israel, it's the same way for us. It's not going to come by who gets nominated to the Supreme Court or doesn't get nominated to the Supreme Court. It's not going to come by who's the president or is somebody else. It's not going to come that way. It's going to come this way. And incredibly, God is asking you to partner with him. If you come and ask God to get us out of the spiral, be willing to say, here I am. Send me. Let's pray. Lord, this is a sermon that could churn up so many different feelings and emotions should stir those up. We see Hannah's soul stirred up. She stirred up for herself. She stirred up for her nation. She stirred up for the things of you. We're stirred up. We're stirred up by by facts that we live in and sometimes try to ignore or they carry a weight. We don't know what to do with them. So we're, we're coming all this morning like Hannah's just to pour out our soul, to, to, to lay it all before you, to trust you, to not pick it back up. And I pray especially here for mothers. It would be a part of creating an environment that a child would come to rescue Maybe rescue a person, maybe rescue a city, and we pray to rescue a nation. Would you hear our prayers this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing our closing song together.